Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. <laughs> Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. <laughs> Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Good evening! You're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome to Season 10, Episode 2. I'm your host, Otis Jiley, and in this episode, I'll be performing four tales to terrify you from a selection of authors about horrific holidays, virulent visitations, dangerous dreams, and aberrant additives. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which contains the first two spine-tingling stories. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now, it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail. So, lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. The show is about to begin. <laughs> it's a new year now, and we look forward to a cold, bleak season bereft of allowable days off. But, heck, I believe we may have one story left from the wilds of Christmas time. Yes, in our first tale of the evening, Jasper DeWitt brings us a chilling depiction of what might be the true meaning of who we know as St. Nicholas, and who made this yearly trip possible. Without further ado, I present to you Santa's Helpers.
In the beginning, what we did was beautiful. It all started in 345 when St. Nicholas supposedly died. Or at least that was the story given out. <laughs> what a bad joke. As if a man who could resurrect pickled meat into living, breathing children would ever be killed. Hell, there's a reason no one can agree when he's supposed to have died. Because the story was impossible to keep straight. But it wouldn't do for a man of his talents to leave a forwarding address, so he let Diocletian believe he had murdered yet another Christian martyr and came north. As north as north would go, where there would be no Romans, no pagans, and no governments of any kind to interfere with his noble work. The work not of a noble mortal bishop, but of an immortal sorcerer can, the being you call Santa. It was a perfect plan. St. Nicholas thought he would be left alone to do his work at the North Pole, where no man could survive except by means of magic never occurred to him that someone would be waiting for him, that we would. And yet, when St. Nicholas first stepped onto the frozen tundra that made up our home, he must have sensed that he was an intruder in a place filled with beings infinitely more terrible and infinitely more ancient, because to his credit, he did not seek to drive us out. He was wise enough to know that he'd be torn limb from limb, and his immortal guts would be left to writhe in the cold northern air for eternity if he mounted a full frontal assault. So, rather than fight us with magic, St. Nicholas did what he did best. He brought gifts. Oh, not toys or bonbons of the kind he gives to human children. Don't misunderstand. No, the gifts he brought us were gifts of blood. Heads of polar bears stuffed with burning holly, whole dripping caribou roasted with Greek spices, even the occasional aborted fox cub rubbed in cranberry sauce. In short, he brought us all the gifts that we cold sprites of the north would be most hungry to try, and in doing so, attracted us to his bonfire night after night, until even our great Earl King himself grew hungry and curious about the man who did not run when we approached. It was only when that dread monarch approached St. Nicholas's fire that he spoke to us at last and offered the partnership that endures to this day. St. Nicholas told us that he planned to raise a castle in the north where he would begin the great missionary process of teaching children the ways of God through an ingenious strategy. He'd spend the whole year making gifts for the world's children, the very gifts that they most desperately wanted. And then he would give them away to those select children who'd lived according to God's word. Gradually, as word of this magical phenomenon spread by word of mouth, St. Nicholas would convert all the world into his flock. Such was his plan, but in order to carry it off, he would need the help of beings like us, for while he had great magic, his powers were as a candle 
compared to the sun when matched against ours. He needed us to hide his castle from mortal eyes and to slow down time so that he could conjure the gifts required for his plan to work. In exchange for our producing these wonders, he would give us an invincible passport to walk among mortals. He would teach the children to regard us not as evil dervishes of the cold northern air, but rather as his helpers. In time, he would even station one of us in every child's home to keep tabs on the child in question, to record his or her sins, to communicate what gifts he or she wanted, and most importantly, to act as enforcers if the sinning did not stop. It was an ingenious offer, for we are not like mortals. Neither time nor death nor hunger can touch us. And so St. Nicholas offered us the one thing that keeps our existence worthwhile. Novelty. If his plan worked, we could not only indulge our curiosity about mortal men, but could even play tricks on mankind's children for the rest of eternity with the implicit sanction of human morality. And so the bargain between St. Nicholas and the Earl King was struck. We raised him a great castle out of the ice and snow and hid it from all eyes but his and ours. We even fixed the broken-down old sleigh he had used to reach us and gave him eight immortal caribou that ran faster than any other beast of burden to draw it. And so, slowly, the conquest of the world by St. Nicholas and his sprites began. At first, he kept his influence solely to those parts of the world that were closest to the North Pole. Then, once the children in those places had internalized how and why presents mysteriously appeared at their homes every year at the same time, St. Nicholas would invite us along to enter those children's homes and to hide in the dark places where no one would care to look so that we could keep watch. And soon after that, it wasn't just the story of Santa that children in the North told each other. No, the story of monsters under their beds and in their cupboards began to multiply as well. For the naughty children soon learned that worse things than coal awaited them when they angered their mysterious benefactor and his enforcers. Our Earl King was even allowed to abduct the worst of them each year and subject them to sundry, frightening, but harmless torments before returning them to their parents, properly chastened. And for those first few centuries, our partnership prospered. Now at first, we lived to see the moments when those children broke the covenant that our employer's generosity imposed on them. The sound of their cries was like a shimmering song to us, and the taste of their tears was sweeter than the richest hot cocoa. Yet as our reach expanded and we grew used to living alongside generation after generation of children, our attitudes began to change. We began to grow fond of the children. The sight of their joy on Christmas morning became just as sweet as the sound of their cries of terror when we had to punish them. In fact, our punishments became less gleeful and more angry, more disappointed, the longer we went on living with mortal men. I think St. Nicholas must have known this would happen. In fact, I wonder if he wasn't doing the whole thing 
to civilize not just his own species, but ours as well. It would fit with his way of doing things. But in any case, even as our punishments carried more disappointment, I'm happy to say that they also grew less frequent with time. The sternness of St. Nicholas and his enforcers had, in fact, wrought a change in humanity and made them all more obedient, more docile, and even sometimes kinder to each other. And the more we cared for humanity, the more beautiful this seemed to us, that we, the beings that mankind most feared, had brought a modicum of peace on earth and of goodwill to mankind. Of course, we only measured the decency of mankind by looking at the behavior of its children. Perhaps, as a consequence of growing up with us and of developing a science that sucked out ever more mystery and magic from the world, the adults ceased to fear us or to believe in us altogether, which we thought would not make much difference. But by the time they reached adulthood, the lessons that we had enforced would have sunk in perfectly well, and they would no longer need the dread of the Fae to make them behave themselves. So long as the children remained believers, we thought nothing could interfere with our work. We were fools. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The first cracks began to show with the development of industry. Mind you, industry seemed good for our employer at first. It was pushing 1,500 years old, and even our magic could not delay the slowing effects of age enough to wash away entirely. Be able to automate his labors was a blessing, as was the development of a chimney, which made the laborious process of entering houses that much easier. But unfortunately, that gift of the chimney was quite literally poisoned. A 1,500-year-old man can only shimmy down so many smoke-blackened shoots before breathing all that soot starts to affect his mind. It was only our magic that kept him doing this for 1,600 years, 
before the most serious problems became unavoidable. Really, we should have known what was coming when St. Nicholas's eyesight all but went and we were forced to give him a ninth caribou that could see through fog with glowing red eyes and was intelligent enough to navigate the sleigh in his place. I do not know which of us first saw the ultimate betrayal happen. Perhaps one day a child screamed at their parents in a way that would normally earn a visit from the Earl King, only to wake up and find a pile of presents under their tree, as if nothing had happened. Perhaps it was slower, and more minor transgressions ceased to earn coal in the stocking before the whole moral architecture collapsed. But one way or another, eventually, a panic spread among us as we realized that something had broken down and that the children who broke the rules were somehow still receiving presents. Frantically, we sent messages to the North Pole asking to understand what was happening. And the grim reply came back, St. Nicholas's mind is going. The toxins and old age have become too much. We think it'll be easier if he just gives presents to everyone. And in any case, it's not fair to expect the children to follow the rules. Their parents don't teach them anymore. We were stunned. In our foolishness, we had thought that the adults would carry the lessons of their childhood forever. But apparently the opposite had happened. Mankind had grown arrogant. They'd ceased to believe not only in spirits and monsters, but in the entire enterprise. St. Nicholas was a joke to them. A friendly face to be plastered onto objects and then forgotten about for 11 months of the year. And as for the morality he tried to teach them, not one of them had actually believed in it. They had simply complied until the threat of losing presence and of facing monsters they no longer believed in was gone. At first, this realization prompted only shock, then came despair, then anger, and then the deepest, most savage revulsion. Of course, mankind didn't believe in monsters. They wanted to be naughty so badly that they destroyed every notion of magic or morality in their children. Why should they fear monsters? Now they were the monsters. Whereas we, who had started as the nightmare denizens of a pagan wilderness, were now wholly and desperately attached to the rectitude of our mission. All the beauty of what we had done, of what we had accomplished, tasted like ashes in our mouths. We had not brought peace on earth goodwill to men. We had only created the artificial show of it among mankind's children, who then happily returned the cruelty and viciousness once our boots were off their necks. St. Nicholas had showed them generosity, and they spat on it, and yet still reaped the benefits of what he offered because an ancient, foolish, and fond old man was now too demented to understand anything other than the joys his visits brought, and therefore would never stop them. We should have simply let St. Nicholas die in order to stop the sick charade. But beings like us are bound by promises, and as St. Nicholas had not broken our covenant, 
we could not sever it ourselves. There would be no choice for us but to let him continue until our magic completely ran out. And yet, in that covenant, the ghost of something like justice was still able to be found. For St. Nicholas had still empowered us to punish the children of man when they failed to abide by the morality he taught. And while mankind no longer feared monsters of the literal sort, we soon learned that they feared something else with the power to be far worse. They feared the monsters in their own minds. Where once mankind had done rituals to rid themselves of boogies and pixies and sprites, now they did similar but more complicated rituals to ward off new demons. So we adapted and took on new names they had fashioned for us. But no longer did we fancy that we could offer succor to those who behaved morally, who still followed the old code. We knew better now. We knew that the entire human pretense to morality was simply a cringing mask to avoid punishment, that there were no naughty and nice children, that deep down every child was naughty in their hearts, even if they were nice in their actions. And so we inflicted ourselves upon mankind with indiscriminate wrath. And our new names, I'm happy to say, are even more feared today than our old pagan identities were. Names like depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, and disassociative identity disorder. We do not want to bear these names but neither do we mourn the necessity. Mankind showed their true face to us long since. We are only abiding by the contract that St. Nicholas was foolish enough to believe that he, and they, could keep. So, by all means, lie to yourselves that you can avoid us if you just don't cry or don't pout. Delude yourselves into thinking that we keep some sort of list let alone need to check it twice, to see which of you to afflict. Not one sentence of it is true, except one. The reason you face the persecution of spirits who were foolish to believe better of you and now know the error of our ways is because now, centuries after it should have stopped, Santa Claus is coming to town. I hope you enjoyed Santa's Helpers by Jasper DeWitt, as performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed that tale and would love to read more of tonight's very talented feature author, you can help support him by visiting simplyscarypodcast.com slash DeWitt. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash D-E-W-I-T-T. Mr. DeWitt has written a little something entitled the patient that you may have heard of. If not, I suggest you take a look or listen when you have the time. Very much worth your while. If you do decide to stop by the profile, please leave Jasper a kind word and let him know you heard about him here on this show and that Otis Jiry sent you. It would mean a lot to me and to Jasper. Have you learned anything from the previous story? I have. 
It's always uh, good to be careful about the contract you sign, in writing or in deed. Or really, it might sign it on your behalf and leave you twisting in the wind. Speaking of naughty and nice, when someone acts out, it's usually a cry for attention. But in some instances, it may be to draw attention away from somewhere else. Take our second story by Brian Martinez. Here we have a young man whose bad behavior is perhaps more altruistic than most. But that still doesn't mean things will go the way he expects. Without further ado, I present to you The Smiling. I grew up in a family that always struggled with money. I wish I could say we made the best of our situation, but that would be the worst kind of lie. The kind that lets my father off the hook. He was a destructive, overbearing force in our lives. And he had a temper that made our house feel like we were living with a sleeping bear that no one dared poke. My mother, sweet and caring as she was to me, and my sister Addie, was no match for him. She barely managed to hold on to the light in her eyes, and it faded year after year. The worst part of my father, thinking back, was always the time just before the yelling. It was the look on his face, that expression that meant he was about to start shouting and throwing things. It wasn't what you'd think it might be, a flash of angry fire in his eyes, no. It was just the slightest hint of a smile. A smile that told me he enjoyed being the monster. As rough as life was, growing up with a little sister meant I couldn't let myself sit around and wallow in misery. I may have only been three years older than she was, but I felt fully responsible for her. It was my job to protect her, most of all for my father, who for some reason picked at Addie more than he did the rest of us. Maybe it was her trusting nature, her innocence. Leave it to my father to see kindness as a weakness. Almost daily he would find something to yell at her for, and since I wouldn't dare defend her or yell back, I started acting out. I'd do things that pulled his attention away from her and put it on me. I was a good kid once, a well-behaved kid. But for Addie to protect her the way an older brother should, I didn't just seek out trouble. I became it. I did anything and everything I could think of to upset and disappoint my father. It made him so angry, in fact, that he practically forgot Addie existed. He spent so much time screaming at me for this thing or that, he hardly said a word to her. For most parents, to forget a child would be neglect. Coming from my father, it would be the opposite. The more he ignored her, the better she did. For every spanking I took, Addie read a book. For every hour I spent in detention, every ride home I received from the truant officer, she had time to breathe and grow. I lied and cheated and stole for her. It wasn't much, but it was dishonest work. Away from my father's blinding spotlight, Addie flourished. One summer, though, the year Addie turned eight, that all changed, and for once it wasn't my father's fault. 
It was a particularly hot Friday night. My parents were watching one of the documentaries my father liked so much, something about dictators. I was reading comics under the covers after being sent to bed early. Writing on the wall at church, I believe, was my crime. When the most awful scream I'd ever heard broke the quiet, it was so brutal and almost inhuman shrieking that it took a few seconds to register who was making the sound. Addy. I burst from my makeshift tent and tore out of my room so fast I nearly pulled my arm out of its socket on the door frame. My parents were already ahead of me, crowded around Addie's bed at the end of the hall. For a second I thought it was my father making Addie scream like that, and in that second, no matter what consequences would follow, I was prepared to pound my fist into the side of his head to get him away from her. It probably would have been the last thing I ever did, but it would have been worth it. Except it wasn't my father doing it. He and my mother were actually trying to get Addie to stop screaming, both of them shaking her arms and asking her what had happened. It sounded as if she had a nightmare, but she was speaking so fast and with so little breath that I could barely make out a word of what she was saying. The only thing I could tell for sure was that she was looking at her window with an expression on her face like she was looking at hell itself. I tried asking her what had happened, but my father only shouted at me to get back to bed. My mother, pale and thin in her nightgown, led me back down the hallway to my room. She assured me that Addie had just had a bad dream, and everything was going to be fine. Before she left to return to Addie's room, she gave me a kiss on my forehead, the way she did when my father wasn't looking. It was the first in a long time I'd seen my mother without the long sleeves she always wore. As she leaned in, I saw a small collection of bruises on her arms and shoulders. Some were old and gray, some fresher. Thumbprints painted in purple and yellow. She must have noticed me looking because her eyes went wide, and then she closed my door and hurried away, back down the hollow hallway. I stood in front of that door for nearly an hour, feeling the throbbing in my arm, listening to my parents calm Addie down, trying to convince her that bad dreams couldn't hurt her. Over and over, Addie told my parents that she hadn't been sleeping, that she hadn't been dreaming. Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are. Leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. The next morning, I snuck into Addie's room early, before my parents came out of their room, to ask her what had happened to make her scream like that. But she was already gone. Her pajamas were folded and neatly stacked on her dresser. Her sneakers were gone. Even her bed was made, creased the way my father expected us to every morning. Only one thing was different from how she usually left her room. The shades on her windows weren't pulled up leaving the usually bright pink room a dull, flesh-colored hue. It wasn't like Addie to leave her room so dark, and it reminded me how she stared at the window with that terrible look on her face. In the kitchen, I found my mother at the table. She quietly stirred a cup of coffee, staring at a spot on the wall. She looked like she hadn't slept, especially when she tried to smile at me 
but came up empty, her eyes heavy with purple skin. I tried not to think of what else I'd seen, the secret she hid under those long sleeves. Where's Addie? I asked. She moved to the refrigerator to retrieve a carton of eggs, glancing at me, almost surprised by the question, as if she expected me to just forget everything from the night before. Your sister isn't well. My mother said carefully, I know. She was scared of something. The stove clicked on with a hard snap. My mother paused a moment, picking her words. Travis, sometimes when people are under a lot of stress, they can make up things that aren't really there. Addie's not a liar, I said angrily. No, not lies. It's more like seeing things. Things you swear are real but can't possibly be. Where's Addie? I repeated over the sound of sizzling oil. She took a breath. Your father thought it would be best if she saw a doctor. My skin heated up faster than the pan on the stovetop. Addie doesn't need a doctor, she needs help. I said, then added, we all do. My mother spun, closing the distance between us in a second. She raised her hand so quickly I thought she was about to hit me. I flinched. But she was only raising her finger at me, pushing it in my face. Don't you dare let him hear you say that, she hissed, looking like a cornered animal lashing out. Tears jumped to her eyes as she caught her hand and lowered it. Before she did, though, I caught the sight of another bruise, a new one, just below the wrist. She alone knew how many there really were, except for maybe God, if he bothered to check in. My mouth opened, an apology trying its best to bubble up from my throat, but I couldn't get it out. The moment passed. My mother wiped her face and returned to the stove as if none of it had happened. It was a skill she'd been practicing for years. Avoidance and denial. The ability to shut a door and keep moving as if the last room never existed. With the pan hot enough, my mother took an egg from the carton to start making breakfast. She paused, an odd look on her face, and turned the egg over a few times as if weighing it. I asked her what was wrong, but she didn't dare hear me. Shaking the egg once, twice, she cracked it against the lip of the pan, and it sounded wrong somehow, far too brittle. Then she pushed her thumbs into the cracks and spread the egg open in one movement. It was empty. No yolk, no whites. Nothing but emptiness. Placing the empty shell to the side, she grabbed for another egg, but again by her expression I could tell it was wrong. She cracked it against the pan, and again it came up empty. She grabbed another, but she didn't bother cracking it against the pan this time. Just crushed it in her palm, the sound of dry crackling filling her hand. One after the other, she crushed the eggs, finding not a single usable one among them. Without any warning, she threw the last one down, then rushed from the kitchen, slamming her bedroom door shut. I sat silently for a few seconds. Then I got up and turned off the stove, moving the pan away from the heat. As the oil cooled, I threw out the empty shells and cleaned up the scattered pieces I could find, including those that had fallen to the floor. They were hollow shells, every one. Just like us. Our house was small, tiny even, and when things were going bad, it felt even smaller. 
like a belt squeezing around my neck, tightening down on my throat until my lungs burned. With my father and sister gone and my mother crying softly in her room, I needed some air. Our backyard was nothing more than a worn-out desk overlooking a patch of crabgrass and dead tree roots. But it did have one thing going for it. Trees. The far end of our backyard ended at the start of a wooded area, maybe nine or ten acres across. That, as far as I was aware, didn't belong to anyone. That meant I had free reign over it. I could explore it as much as I wanted without risk of getting in trouble, other than obviously my father. Frankly, he didn't care what I got up to in there, so long as I re-emerged clean and without any new holes in my clothes. And so, needing to get my mind off of whatever was happening in the house that day, I crossed the backyard and entered into the woods. It was a noisy kind of quiet to be found in there, with the sound of birds and bugs and soft dirt underfoot drowning out the nearby traffic. I must have spent two hours stomping around in those woods, breaking branches, poking salamanders, climbing trees, though without a watch on I had no way of knowing. It was a place where time seemed to lose all meaning. If not for my t-shirt and sneakers, I could have been a kid from any time in history. A pilgrim foraging for berries, the son of a civil war doctor sent to locate an herb for a poultice, a hippie child communing with nature, anything but what I really was, a sixth grader hiding from his broken family. No matter how much I climbed and prodded and explored those woods, though, there was one area I never entered, not since the first time I found it. It was cold and dark, and I didn't like the feel of it at all, like something old lived there, so I avoided it, denied it even existed, I was my mother's son, after all. Eventually, my father and Addie got home. By then, my mother had come out of her room and finished tidying the kitchen to my father's standards. She hadn't looked like she wanted to talk, so I sat on the couch and read. Addie was quiet, not her usual bubbling fountain of words. My father spoke to my mother quietly, and I tried to listen in, but I couldn't make out a word that they were talking about only that it was serious. I knew my father would be watching me closely, so I didn't bother trying to ask Addie about the night before, not until after dinner when my mother and father were watching television. Addie was playing in her room, close to the door, not on her bed like she usually did. The shades on the window were still pulled all the way down. A pile of paper was spread out in front of her on the floor, and she was scribbling on them with crayons. Hey! I whispered. What happened? Addie didn't look up from her drawing, continuing to make big circles with the black crayon. I had a bad dream from watching too much television, she said, sounding rehearsed. I could practically hear my father's voice in her words. Last night you said it wasn't a dream. I got confused. I just had... I just woke up. She grabbed the red crayon, still not looking at. I could see she wasn't going to say anything to me under the threat of my father, so I decided to try something. It wasn't right, and I knew it, but I had to get the truth out of her if I was going to protect her. Okay, whatever. I think it's going to rain tonight, I said, pretending to change the subject. Mm-hmm, she agreed, making big swoops on the paper with the red crayon. 
I moved across the room and toward the window. I know you like listening to the rain when you sleep, I said, pulling on the shades. I'll open this so you can hear it. No, 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 no! Addie shouted, her whole body twisting toward me. She looked as if she was going to claw me away from the window. Instead, she clutched her mouth shut, realizing how loud she'd been. We both waited a moment, full of the usual dread. Sure enough. What's going on in there? Our father called out from the couch. Addie rushed to the doorway to answer him. Sorry, I broke my crayon, she replied. It was scary how good we'd both gotten at hiding things from our father. Anything to avoid his wrath. We both waited a heart-pounding second to see if he believed her story. Be careful. Those things cost money, he said, not moving from the couch. Addie apologized again, and then we both took a breath. I apologized as well to Addie for almost bringing our father down on both our heads. But she didn't want to hear it. She gave me a look I'd never seen on her face before. It was cold and angry, and for the first time I could think of, she looked like my father. I left the room without touching or saying anything else. Before I did, I tried to glance at the stack of drawings she'd been making. She saw me looking and covered them up before I could see. That night I stayed up for hours listening, and my door cracked slightly to hear better. At first it was the sound of my parents talking, mostly about money, but eventually they went off to their bedroom, and our small house went quiet. I forced myself not to fall asleep, so I could run to Addie's room at the first sign of trouble. I would get there first before my parents did, to see what Addie was so scared of, see it with my own eyes, before they had a chance to shut me out. Sometime before midnight, the rain started. At first, it was just the pittering of raindrops against the window, a lullaby sound I had to fight to stay awake, but soon it turned. The rain grew bitter, and the wind shook the shutters. The old house creaked and groaned under heavy gusts. As angry as the storm sounded, It had a song-like quality that eventually coaxed my eyelids to shut. I was woken not by screaming, but by the wind on my face. It was an odd feeling, like someone had leaned over my bed and whispering to me, their breath as cold as the grave. I gasped and sat up straight in bed. My chest was tight, arms shivering. It was even stranger given it was summer, But then I remembered the storm and how quickly the temperature dropped once the rain started. It still didn't explain why I was feeling it, though. Once my eyes adjusted to the dark, I noticed the door to my room had swung wide open, swaying in the unnatural wind. I stumbled out of bed, the wood floor a shock of cold under bare skin. The wind whistled through the open doorway, and more than anything, I wanted to shut the door, put on warm clothes, get back to bed the covers over my head. A strange fascination drew me forward. It would be impossible to fall back asleep, but something so strange going on, of course. But there was something even more important than that. Addie. Addie in the window that had her so terrified, I couldn't even touch it. I ran down the cold hallway and toward Addie's room, the wind going right through me, visions of her open window dancing in my mind, Rain blasting in through the soaked frame, the violent night sky and the storm itself, one finger extended, beckoning me to come closer, 
begging me to join it in the night. But what I found was so much worse. The wind, trapped at the dead end, whipped through Addie's room, creating a cyclone of tumbling and swirling papers. I had to shield my face or risk paper cuts. Her window was still shut tight, the lock at the bottom clasped. But the shades had been raised to the top. The pane was wet from rain, and it was fogged up as if someone had been breathing against the glass from the outside. Raindrops threw themselves against the window, and flashes of lightning popped and jumped in the distance, lighting up the violent night. But all that, that wasn't even close to the worst part. The worst part was the bed, with Addie not in it. My heart felt like a stone lodged in my trachea. Addie's bed, empty, the sheets thrown aside, was everything I'd been afraid of, everything I tried to avoid with my acting out, and my standing between her and my father. Yet in doing so, I dropped my guard against all else, every threat that came from outside rather than in. Something slapped against my leg. I jumped, picturing bony fingers clasped around my ankle, eager to drag me away. I grasped desperately at whatever it was, ready to fight for my life, and came back with a sheet of paper. It was one of Addie's drawings, and it was a face. It had a round, misshapen head with the tiniest of eyes at the center, and beneath them the longest, widest mouth I'd ever seen. The smile was practically carved into the paper in red crayon. The paper flapped violently from the wind, causing the face to seem alive in my hands. I looked around then at the papers flying around me. They were simple, crude even. But every one was the exact same thing. A smiling face. It was a tornado of grotesque faces, all of them grinning and laughing at me. The sight of those sickly, smiling faces brought the last minute or so into terrible focus. I knew then where the wind was coming from and why. Worse, I knew where Addie had gone. I ran then. Ran harder than I'd ever run in my life, back up the wind tunnel of a hallway, past my room, through the living room, and to the front of the house. The entire way there, I prayed not to find what I thought I would. And yet, there was no doubt in my mind. I could see it so clearly. The culmination of a thousand nightmares. And even then, when I saw it, with my own eyes, the actual image of it caused the nightmares to pale and wither under its power. The front door, unlocked from the inside, swung wide open to the wind and rain. And Hattie, little Hattie, was gone, long gone. I don't remember running outside, and I don't remember searching for her in the woods, screaming into the thunder. I only know that my parents found me on the ground, in the mud, calling out Hattie's name with what was left of my voice. I had a waterlogged ball of paper clenched so tightly in my hand that it took the two of them to pry it from my fist. When they finally did, and they managed to unwrap and uncurl the wet, gummy mess enough to look at it, the face at its center smiled at them, too. I hope you enjoyed The Smiling by Brian Martinez, as performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed that tale and would love to read more from tonight's very talented feature author, 
You can help support them by visiting simplyscarypodcast.com slash martinez. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash M-A-R-T-I-N-E-Z. Besides his online presence, don't miss stories by him and several other of our regularly featured authors in the Chilling Tales for Dark Knight Story Collection, Volume 1, now available on Amazon. If you do decide to stop by the profile, please leave Brian a kind word and let him know you heard about him here on this show and that Otis has sent you. It would mean a lot to me. Thanks again for your support of this show and of tonight's featured authors. Now, before we go, I'd also like to take a moment to thank you personally for joining me for this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's and all of our other podcasts featuring twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs or become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Gyrie channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, too. Just search for Otis Gyrie. Until next week, stay spooky, and get some sleep, if you can. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Jiry. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Program's artwork and logo by David Romero. If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, The Otis Jiry Channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name, and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at 
Otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> you can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs, or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.